This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. It's my great pleasure to welcome all of you to the very first Eureka Talk series. Um, yes, please. Yeah, <laughs> um, at, at the top, of course, I'd just like to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners and custodians of the lands in which we meet today, the Gadigal people, and um, pay my respects to elders past and present uh, and other members of the uh, Indigenous communities who might be with us today. Eureka Talks, um, a great idea um, based on an idea that's as, as cool, maybe even cooler. Um, the Australian Museum since 1990 has been handing out awards to the best and the brightest in science, if you're not aware. They're called the Eureka Prizes. Some people call them the Oscars of science. My guest today, who I'll get to very, very shortly, uh, has won two of them. Uh, I've won one. Um, my name's Jackson Ryan. I'm the science editor at a US publication called CNET.com. Um, I've been doing science uh, writing for almost a decade now and uh, focus on things like climate change, sustainability, space, other cool things like that too. Um, but really, I kind of want to be invisible today because I've got a, a brilliant mind sitting next to me, um, one of Australia's best. In fact, we're going to be talking about waste today, revolutionising waste and recycling. I actually don't think there's anyone better on the planet than, than this person to talk about that. So yes, um, please put your hands together for Veena Sahajwala. Um, Veena, if you don't know, is uh, the director of the UNSW uh, Centre for Sustainable Materials Research and uh, Technology, or SMART. And look, her biography is crazy. Like, honestly, Veena. <laughs> so if I had one of those old scrolls, I'd have to unroll, and it would just roll <laughs> and roll and roll. And even as impressive as that is, somehow it undersells just how cool Veena is, right? Um, just last year alone, Veena was awarded the New South Wales Australian of the Year. Uh, the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering Clooney's Ross Innovation Award, and also, of course, the Celestino Prize, uh, Eureka Prize for Promoting Understanding of Science. And that's why we're here today, because Veen is going to help us understand science. She's going to help us understand waste, revolutionising waste and, and recycling. And there's something that Veena said to me very recently uh, in the pre-interview for this, and I promise I'll shut up in a minute and let her talk, that really stuck with me. Um, this is, of course, us here uh, winning our Eureka Prizes. Vina, <laughs> uh, very understated, but uh, that's me and Kit, Kit, Kim McKay, the, the uh, CEO of the Australian Museum, kissing my award. Um, and, of course, the title of this presentation is Waste Not, Want Not. But this is something that Vina said to me very recently. She said, challenge what normal looks like. And I think this idea is the big idea really at the centre of our conversation today. And I think... It's worth keeping it in the front of your mind when you listen to Veena, because this is basically her entire career summed up in, in a sentence or a quote. And I really like this idea because challenging what normal looks like can mean a lot of things, and I think it's worth thinking about it in our own lives when it comes to waste, when it comes to recycling, when it comes to the barriers that we kind of put up and the normal that we accept. So, Veena, I'm going to turn to you finally uh, after speaking for way too long and ask you a little bit about that quote and a little bit about that question of what, what is normal? What does normal look like for us right now when it comes to recycling? And why are you doing this? Why are you challenging what normal looks like? Why do we have to do that? 
Yeah, no, thanks, thanks, Jackson, for that question. And thank you for the opportunity. I want to thank the Australian Museum for the incredibly fantastic work that everyone here at the museum does. I mean, when, when we're sitting here, uh, you know, having a chat to each other, uh, I guess in a way, you know, we're, we're also acknowledging the fact that there is so much that's happening in the world of science. Um, and, you know, the, the privilege that, you know, we have, um, you know, in, in being recognized through the Australian Museum with the Eureka Prizes, I think is, is a great way for us to share our passion. And, and so I think for me, you know, with, with waste, uh, it, it was always that question, you know, all the time when we kind of just very conveniently said, okay, we've, we've used something and now, you know, off it goes into a rubbish bin somewhere and, you know, some magical fairy takes it away and you're like, well, no, there is no such thing as a, as a tooth fairy. There's no such thing as let's put it away. Well, I mean, there's no such thing as away because it is the one planet um, that we all live on that we, that we share. So in a way, sometimes that was really something that, you know, part of the time bothered me, made me really upset. And, and you know what, it's okay to be upset because I think that kind of almost gets you to start to think about, um, so what do I do about it? And so challenging the normal, I guess in a way for all of us, as you've correctly pointed out, is something that we, we kind of want to do because there, there could be something that bothers us. And, um, and of course, when you are in the world of science and engineering and you, you look at what's happening in the world around you, if, if something does bother you, and you don't just have to be in the world of science to actually be moved by things that you see around you. And so, you know, growing up in, in Mumbai, in India, I think to me that, that part of the fact that there were so many incredible people, um, you know, who were, who were so happy to be able to do their part. Yes, it was a livelihood where, you know, waste materials that, you know, people threw away was being collected, was being used, reused, repurposed, or indeed um, then sold again. I think to me that inspiration was, was something that got, got into my heart in the very early days because I think it also was a recognition that for so many people, when you're actually combining, yes, the necessity of doing things, because you've, you've got to earn a living. But on the other hand, if you actually were to recognize the fact that how essential that service um, you know, is um, for our communities, for our planet, um, that to me was always something that stayed um, in my mind. And, and of course, when you start to look at all kinds of complex products, sometimes, yeah, it's not that easy because you know, when you think about all of those products that get converted back into the same thing again, you know, glass, broken glass, going back and becoming broken glass again, for instance. I mean, that was, that was a pretty kind of normal thing. And what, what I really loved about, um, you know, the, the collection that happened where people would come around, collect your old newspapers and old broken bits of glass and other things at home. There was also another element to it, which I found really exciting, which was the fact that they would then go, okay, you've given me this big pile of all this paper and everything else. In exchange, you're going to get this little tiny steel spoon. Ooh, that got me really excited as a kid. It was like, wow, like I'm, I'm actually getting something brand new and shiny for this pile of old paper. So I think very early on, you sort of start to realize that, you know, there is a value in everything. And, and, and in return, when you do start to get these little spoons, for me, it was like a little 
you know, collector's items. I'm like, that hard work that I did mm-hmm. was now kind of, you know, getting me this, this kind of recognition of the fact that I was suddenly owner of a nice brand. Yeah, you, were see- you were seeing something that yes. perhaps we yeah. typically think of as not valuable well, exactly. become something valuable. Yeah, exactly. Because I think even though you didn't quite understand how that kind of ecosystem worked, you knew for sure that all of these people who were involved in that process were clearly able to convert all of that you know, stuff that you didn't need. So suddenly it was not waste, it was just stuff you didn't need, you know, old papers, broken bits of glass. You didn't need it, but somebody was clearly taking it away, doing something useful with it. There was that whole, you know, system that excited me. Because I, I just remember having conversations with a lot of these people. I'm sure they found this little kid really annoying because it was like, you know. But, but having said that, what I really go back and I think about you know, all of those bazaars and markets and places like Mumbai where I grew up, I think it was exciting because also it meant that when you were walking into these repair places, everybody was, you know, able to do all kinds of repair. And, and again, that was an exciting part of that ecosystem because you are now starting to connect all these dots in your mind. And I think, I think to me, again, that it was a bit of a buzz because mm. you almost sort of, you know, got that sense of optimism and excitement around how... You know, people were so clever, um, and you really appreciated the hard work because also it meant that you could take your broken, you know, things that you had at home, and you could go there and get things repaired. So whether it was getting your shoes repaired or, you know, an old TV set repaired, it didn't matter. And let's let's talk about those things, those yeah. broken things, <laughs> uh, because maybe to even frame the conversation for for, for everyone, it's like. You, you've been dubbed the Waste Queen. That is, that is a title that has been given to you, which it doesn't sound that nice, but I think it's actually kind of... It's a good, it's I a good think title. it's pretty cool. I yeah, love it. I'd, love to see the, I'd love to see the crown. But I think, <laughs> Me too. I think one of the things is, like, what, what is waste? Mm. What, 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 when you say the word waste, like, what is that to you? And what is it, like, do we have different ideas of waste, do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, everybody can kind of give it a meaning in their own kind of minds, Right. I mean, fundamentally, for most people, be like, look, I don't need something anymore, therefore it's a waste. But if you actually unpack that, you know, at a deeper level, everything is a material. So if you can actually sort of just go back and say, well, if it's a material, yes, it may not function in a certain way because it's now broken or it's obsolete, but it can then be a material that can be repurposed or remanufactured and it can be brought back to life. And if you can imagine that you could do that over and over again, well, then there really shouldn't be anything called a waste. Mm -hmm. So if you actually can imagine that for any raw material, fundamentally, whether it's a a ceramic or or piece of metal or plastic, if every bit of raw material could be brought back to life, um, you could actually create all kinds of innovative products and then there would be no limits because, you know, you're not then going, oh, I would love to make this, but I don't know where to access, you know, those materials because now you're suddenly able to think about all those raw materials. So in my mind, there's no such thing as a waste because effectively it means you're helping, you're helping that ecosystem around you mm-hmm. by enabling that conversation that says, look, I've got this item, um, you know, it doesn't quite work, but if, if I can kind of make it so that somebody else can reuse it, fix it, uh, and bring it back to life. So in principle, if everything 
was remanufactured. And, and yes, not everything is that simple, just, you know, just kind of repair it and repurpose. Sure. Sometimes you do need more complex systems, depending on how complex uh, that product is. But if everything was able to be remanufactured, then technically everything is a raw material just waiting to be harnessed. I love, I love, that. I love that you look at the world in this way because yeah. uh, I, I get a coffee cup and I think, oh, it's a co- whatever, you know, my coffee grounds go from the espresso machine to the bin. That's not acceptable to you, right? That's not waste. No, that's a product. No, that's right. And indeed, coffee, uh, my all-time favorite beverage, um, <laughs> some of the work that we have been doing uh, more recently is around looking at how this residue wastes coffee that, of course, is generated all over the world after you've enjoyed your cup of coffee and you've now got these solid grounds left over, we've actually shown that you can use that in the production. We'll get to that. We'll get to that in a minute. Ooh, so I, think, I will wait. I, I think I will wait. I'm getting people, too maybe excited. Maybe sipping on coffee out there. It's a bit late for coffee, to be honest. <laughs> um, it's never too late. For I'd like to quantify... <laughs> you're right. I'd like to quantify the problem a bit, and I think um, a lot of it obviously comes back to... Uh, just waste in general, plastic pollution, and maybe factors as well a little bit into climate change, which is something that you obviously tackle head-on when we're talking about the steel industry, removing things like uh, coal, coal coke from that process. But can you quantify that problem for us? Like, what is the problem with waste, and what is the problem, I guess, with waste in, in Australia, in our communities here? What's the big pressing issue for you? I think, you know, there are so many different materials we use in our everyday lives, right? So even if you kind of don't think twice about that essential item, tires, you know, we know that we all use it, you know, no matter what form of transport, you know, you take. But the point, therefore, is that when these essential products wear out or are no longer fit for purpose, Mm. then products like that, whether they are your tires or different kinds of clothing items, um, you know, electronic items. In all of these cases, the challenge, of course, for us in Australia is that we use all of these products, whether it's our tech devices to our tires, all kinds of plastics. We use it. We can't just kind of go, well, I mean, you know, it's, it, we're a small population, therefore we don't have a market, therefore we're not going to do anything about it. Mm. The realities are that, you know, we're using all of these products, so we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to the planet, we owe it to, to basically just keeping people and planet healthy that we do our bit. Mm. So I think to me, in a way, looking at each of these different items and kind of reimagining the way we use it and the way we reuse it and remanufacture, we need to do so much more. So thinking about how recycling innovation can come to life, and this is where, of course, that example of steel production that, that you were asking if we continue to say, well, the only way to do it is by using coal and coke, then we're not making any progress. But if, on the other hand, we recognize that there are alternatives in looking at those raw materials, so remember, we are talking about raw materials before, coming from all these other resources that we might simply discard. But imagine if we could actually show that a lot of these raw materials from what we believe are no longer useful, like our tires, can now go back into production in the making of steel, then you've suddenly got an alternative that provides you with those essential elements. Mm -hmm. And the kinds of elements that we're, of course, using as part of our our technology, our green steel making technologies, both those elements of carbon and hydrogen that you can access through tires, 
And of course, it means that you've got to understand right down at the molecular level, fundamentally, how does that transformation take place? So for mm -hmm. saying it's not a waste, it's a raw material, you've got to question and back to that point, challenge the norm. Mm. And if we're challenging the norm, you can't just, I mean, I remember in the early days was very much about, oh, well, but if we're using this to replace our coal and coke, surely it can't do a good enough job. You know, if we always start with the premise that it can't do a good enough job, then we won't make progress. But if we challenge ourselves and go, wait a minute, but why shouldn't it do a good enough job? So in the early days, I guess in my mind, you know, the, the bar I set for myself was, okay, if I'm going to do any of these experiments in the lab and if we're going to test out all of these theories, we need to know ultimately what is it going to look like in the long term, as in is it going to not only do the job, but are we going to have people in, in the making of steel and all kinds of other products, you know, be happy to use these raw materials. Mm. So what is it going to take? from a scientific point of view to prove that fundamental science to then be able to show um, to the users that, hey, all these different steps that you might wonder about, we've actually unpacked that mm -hmm. through the scientific work that we've done in the labs. So that was an important first step to even to be able to ask that question, how would you even design that scientific experiment. Yeah, well, let's dig into that a bit because yeah. the, the green yeah. steel, I'm, I'm sure people know Vina, green steel is a very big part of your journey, of course. And I think part of the thing that really has always interested me about this is like, I have no idea how steel is made. Like, I don't know how much carbon dioxide is con being contributed by the steel industry. I don't know how that works. And so I'd, I'd really like to understand first that process, you attacking that process and being like, we can make this better with different raw materials. So yeah. what, what is the steel making process and where did you come in with this green steel idea? Mm. So I mean, Which typically, I typically in, any, in any sort of production journey, um, and you'll see, you know, uh, basically in electric arc furnace steel making, which is where our green steel has now been commercialized. And, and over the years, as we've looked at, you know, products like tires as, as a feedstock material, we had to show in those lab experiments that not only did it do the job where you might have to convert iron oxide into iron. So what you have to imagine, that you're taking something that is in a different form and you've got, let's say, iron present as iron oxide because, of course, you know, steel is an alloy of iron and carbon. Mm -hmm. So you need parent, parent element, that's your iron, and then, of course, all the alloying additives that go into it, you know, elements like carbon. And then, of course, we know that there are so many other stainless steel and other industrial grades of steel that need all those minor elements. It's those minor elements that almost define, you could say, you know, what type of steel. I mean, it's almost that interesting way, if you had to draw the parallel with, with all of us as humans, it's that character um, that steel offers. And... and that variety of application is what makes it such a beautiful material that you can imagine that parent metal iron and then you can imagine all these additives. You know, if you want to make stainless steel, you want nickel and chromium and you want to make, you know, really hard and strong, you can control how much carbon. But all of this means that these elements are actually present in that steel itself. Mm. But how do you get those elements in there, right? So in the, in the making of steel, not only have you got to convert that iron oxide into iron, you've got to remove that oxygen. Mm. And in the removal of oxygen, you need something that's a reducing agent. Mm. 
So that reducing agent typically, of course, has been used in the form of coal and coke. That contains carbon. That then pulls that oxygen out. You've now got basically that parent metal. But that parent metal in its own doesn't quite have all the characteristics. And that process is letting carbon dioxide into the and air as well? And that, of course, because you've now removed that oxygen, you've now got CO2. So, so of course, yes, that, that's exactly what happens. But keeping in mind that carbon in making of steel is also important, as we were talking about before, in that that carbon becomes part of the structure. Mm. So you've got to then find a way in which you can carburize that metal. That means you've got to dissolve that carbon into that parent metal, right? Well, how do you do that? You can't do that in a solid state. That means your steel is literally in that liquid mm -hmm. state. And of course, when you can picture that liquid steel, it's, it gives you such a buzz because you can, you can absolutely feel like, oh my gosh, this beautiful metal that is being produced from that incredibly hot state has got now the power to become any kind of steel because mm. when it's molten and you're adding all these alloying additives into it, it's an absolutely dynamic system. So the fact that we can you know, not only carry out that reduction reaction, but you can then carburize and introduce. So now that carbon is not something that's going into the atmosphere and you know, bringing about carbon emissions, actually carbon that's dissolving. And that reaction is called carburization. So mm. when we think about all these metallurgical reactions, what you've got is the ability to actually say, okay, wait a minute, so if I want to remove that oxygen, how about then if I bring in those tires that can then liberate hydrogen. So we're talking about car tires? Exactly. And they have, and their, what's their got, structure? They're in their molecular structure, mm -hmm. we've got the ability to access those elements that we mm -hmm. want. So we're now suddenly looking at all of these products, these raw materials, from point of view of not just how much of those elements they contain and in what structure, but actually, most importantly, how would you use it in the manufacturing process? Mm. So when you think about that whole bigger picture of you know, materials and products being regenerated over and over again, you can't just see it from the point of view of, oh, this is tire. You've got to see it from the point of view of, fundamentally, what are those There's elements? carbon atoms in there, yes. and you want to get to them. And you want to be able to liberate that. Yes. But the, the dynamics between you know, all these reactions that are taking place it's, it's, it's exciting because what you're really doing is it's all these different elements and reactions that are taking place. And what you is want it like to cooking, do... Vina? Is it like <gasps> cooking? It's slightly hotter. Okay, slightly hotter. Yeah. <laughs> slightly hotter. Um, but you've got to find a recipe, kind of, right? You need it, to find the... In, in your experimental... Yes, you, you've got... Exactly, and you've got, to, you've got to find a way to control it. Mm. So I think, in a way, the key word there is controlling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because what's happening is all these reactions are occurring at that speed. Mm. And how do you know that, you know, one's not happening faster than the other? So how do you manage it so that you don't have this situation where, you know, you've created all these you know, hydrogen molecules, this nice, clean hydrogen molecule, you've liberated that. But how do you know that that is actually going to do the job you want it to do? Because in the making of steel, you want that iron oxide reduction to liberate that metal. So, you know, you don't want to be in that situation where you've got your hydrogen molecules, but then that's kind of really disappeared because it's too fast. 
So it's that balancing mm. of all these exciting reactions that take place. And it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty cool. I know it's hot, but it's pretty cool too at the same time. Um, you, you've got that situation where you're sort of challenging yourself going, okay, well, how is it that I'm going to create that nice balance of all these reactions? Because you want to get the best of everything. And so in doing so, you have to be able to ask the question, what are these raw materials? Mm. How am I going to unpack it, unmake it? But I, I want to unmake it and at the same time remake it. Mm. So the point that we're talking about here is that whole science of unmaking and then remaking, right? So what, what I thought I kept, well, you know what? This is starting to get really complex and exciting. We need another name for this type of recycling. So I said, ah, oh, you know, we're going to call it micro-recycling. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so different to doing traditional recycling yes. where you convert the same to same. Mm -hmm. You know, your plastic bottle becomes another plastic bottle. But in this case, really it was that complex science of saying if you were to unmake things and then remake it, there are so many possibilities. Mm. So the fact that then we're now showing that all these different reactions right down at the micro level have to be controlled mm -hmm in a way that you can actually make sure that nothing is a waste. Yeah, that's uh, incredible stuff, to be honest. And I failed uh, chemistry in my first year of university, so a lot of that <laughs> went over my head. Uh, no, not, not quite over my head, but uh, lucky I did some research. Um, I think one of, one of the things with what you're talking about, though, is like thinking about these products or waste products yeah. at a level that we typically don't think about them at, right? Yeah. And so yeah. getting into your green steel manufacturing, was this first a, a process that occurs in your laboratory in a small scale? Yeah. How does it how does it go from your brain to actually in an electric arc furnace <laughs> out in the real world? How does yeah, it happen? Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a really good question, Jackson, because remember the early days doing some of these experiments and, you know, again, you're right. You know, in your head, it works perfectly. Yeah. Like that, that, those multiple thought bubbles going around and you're going, cool, that, that's easy. I can do this, you know. Just, you know, have this material, it's prepared in a certain format, you know, the furnace operating conditions have been designed, yep, it's a small furnace, I've got, you know, this fantastic facility, it's all been designed, you know, all that detail from the sample holder to, you know, how am I going to get it into the furnace because, you know, it's got to, it's got to just be sitting at the right condition. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in your head it's all working perfectly fine, so you're right, I mean, it's, you know, it's like, and then, of course, you do these experiments. And, and time and time again, all that you see is this thing just falling apart. <laughs> and, and, of course, it's, it's almost like literally you can see your dreams being shattered. <laughs> You're going, oh, my gosh, I can't even make it work in that tiny little experiment. It's never going to work in the real world. Yes. You know? So I guess part of that, that process of what does it take to get there mm -hmm. is so important because I think quite often you know, that happens to to us in so many sort of different ways in, in a context of real life where you're trying different things and you, you run into barriers and roadblocks and no matter what you do, that's always what life is all about. And, and I think sometimes that ability to go back and really see when something has kind of literally kind of pushed you aside, thrown you down and, you know, people kind of, you know, I'm sure looking at it going, ha, 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 that's... You know, I mean, come on, don't be silly, you yeah, know, yeah. kind of thing. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, you know, I just remember, you know, when you then get past that point where you've kind of done the lab experiments and you kind of figured out, okay, what I need to do is I need to do this material prep in a slightly different way 
if I prep this differently, I prepare this, and then I try that different set of operating parameters, that's how I'm going to get that And you reaction. do this at a small scale. And do and that at a small scale. You that's slowly right. scale up. Yeah. But so, but when you get to a big, <laughs> do you get the same issues at the, well, at the, at the big this, scale? This is the point. I mean, that, that kind of thinking around how you go from, okay, I've done that at a small scale in the lab, but then now you're thinking, oh my gosh, now I'm going to have this happening on a continuous scale how do you even imagine that this is going to work? Because all those tiny sort of reactions that you were able to see, you know, we've got cameras that were set up and we were looking at those reactions and, and really fantastic because you could see all that slag foaming that was happening. <laughs> it, it's absolutely incredible because the gas bubbles coming out. I remember the first time, you know, you could see all of this and you go, oh my God, like, it must be doing the thing I think it's doing yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. But it's not till you've gathered all the data and you've analyzed everything and you've taken the samples out, you, you've done the analysis that you go, oh, it worked. Yeah. You know, like even though visually you can see something, you can see it working. Um, but yes, you, you need to be able to go back and have a look at the data and you need to analyze the samples. So you've got all of that fantastic, you know, evidence. Mm -hmm. And then you're thinking, okay, that's great. Slightly complicated problem it needs to now actually get into this kind of slightly bigger furnace. Yes, yes. <laughs> this little tiny thing that sits <laughs> on the bench top as opposed to, you know, this thing. some, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This, this sort of larger uh, capacity furnace. And, and of course, in that sense, it's, it's really kind of scary because you sort of think, okay, now what if all this gas, yes, it's fantastic, you know, hydrogen and everything else coming out. We've done the measurements. We know the reaction's happening. But what if you got, you know, remember the key word I was telling you before? Control. Yes, yes. And then you go, what does that mean on a much larger scale? Mm -hmm. Like even picturing that in your head, like how would you, yes, you can do all the numbers, but remember again, the speed at which these things are happening, you're able to control that really well a in a tiny system mm. exactly right but now you're suddenly talking about control but it's like everything else in life right you can kind of picture things in your head you can do it on a small scale you can try certain ideas you know in your lab or in your home and you've got all of that vision of how you're going to unfold something globally mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you realize oh it's the the technical roadblocks but wait before that it could also be the roadblocks associated with people who kind of go no, no, that's good. It worked in the lab, mm -hmm. but really, uh, no, on a larger scale. Mm. So you actually have to find really partners, right? You need it, to find people in industry and exactly. collaborate with you who actually want to try this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. that's as big of a challenge probably as it, it the tiny scale <laughs> problems you've had, right? Yeah, look, totally. And, and I guess, I mean, you know, I, I sort of think back in the early days when um, the earlier work that I had done had received um, you know, the, the Eureka Prize for uh, Scientific Research. Uh, in those early days, it was great, you know? I mean, you, you get this incredible recognition for science. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you go, well, it should be easy. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, little do you know that the easy bit was, of course... The science. <laughs> that was well, I mean, we have a problem in some ways in this country of being able to turn our inventions mm -hmm. and our mm -hmm. ideas and our 
the basic science into, and commercialise it, right? Yeah. This is something that's very difficult. It's very difficult across yeah. all science, scientific disciplines. Yeah, well, that, that's it. And, I mean, again, you know, I, I, I did, did basically my studies in North America. And mm. when you, you are sort of looking at, well, of course, it should be easy because, you know, you come in, like you're saying, you know, you've, you've got... You've got, of course, the work that's already proven from a scientific perspective. Mm. So what is that barrier? And, and you've hit the nail on the head there. It is about partnerships. It is about, you know, finding those incredibly amazing partners, you know, in industry who get as excited and as passionate about the science and the technology. So absolutely, I mean... And you know, those partners... The, those are the partners we, we continue to work with, yeah. They want to challenge what normal looks like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They I told want to you to keep that in your mind, guys. <laughs> this is the whole point of that slide. I, I want to go... So, so your green steel is, again, one of your most famous inventions and I think something that has really revolutionised manufacturing. But it's not just ties that you're going to throw in there, right? There are a couple other things coming on the horizon and yes. things that you've been researching. Some yes. of your recent papers look into, as we yes. touched on a little bit earlier, coffee grounds, right? Yes. So we can use coffee grounds to also replace the coal and coke. Can you explain? Yeah. Um, you know, again, this was one of those things where I guess when you're somebody who drinks a lot of coffee mm -hmm. and you didn't overcome a little bit with that guilt going, oh, my God, what am I doing? You know, you, you just sort of, you know, because you know that not everything will end up properly being used because there's, there's a whole lot of, you know, kind of material that can be used as composting, you know, feedstock. So, therefore, there is a lot of residue that's left behind mm. that will never get used. But on the other hand, if you actually pause and reflect on, as, as in the early days when, you know, I started to reflect on how we could use it, actually it was quite cool because in, in those days was pretty much, uh, you know, we're working towards replacing coal and coke in electric arc furnace altogether and, and yes indeed that's the goal and and we're not there yet but you know definitely we want to get to the point that we want to in EFs we want to eliminate the need for coal and coke mm. um yeah we're partly there with the use of uh, polymer injection technology where we're introducing uh, rubber as we were talking about but then you've got to also ask that you do need that solid carbon you know that allows us to be able to use that as a raw material, as we were talking in the making of steel. Yeah. And so if you can start to imagine the fact that in what we've got, that residue coffee, we've got the ability to access not only carbon, but also, yep, back again, hydrogen. Mm -hmm. We've now got the opportunity to go, wait, if I need those two elements, and I've got in my tires, I've got in my coffee, but I, I need that fine balancing act where I know I need a certain amount of solid carbon as well, because that solid carbon is, as we we're saying, an essential element in the making mm -hmm. of steel, then I need to be able to find a way to replace rest of that coke that is used in, in the making of steel with another form of solid carbon. So if I can bring that in, you know, as the world is looking to decarbonize, you know, we know very well that all these alternative materials that we're talking about, these resources are literally available, um, you know, if not at the tip of our fingers inside our coffee cups. Mm. So why are we not looking at the obvious um, materials? So in those early days, I remember uh, one of um, students who had um, done her degree in metallurgy, and, uh, and I said to her, wow, so you're really passionate about it, because to some extent it was like, oh my gosh, this was like, you know, me almost 
thinking this is the idea now I need a metallurgical student who, who's going to kind of be passionate about this work. So you had the coffee idea and you needed someone to take And a student take, had take to come along, yes, yeah. And of course it was almost like I remember doing a seminar um, and this student just approached me um, saying, well, you know, looking to, to come to UNSW and, you know, whatever, would you have any exciting projects? And I remember that time, this was like the front and center of mine, I had my coffee, coffee cup in my hand and I'm going... <laughs> how would you like to work on coffee? <laughs> I think she must have probably first thought I was a bit crazy. Um, you know, after spending an hour chatting, we were like, this is the coolest idea. I want to come and do my PhD on this. So I guess to me, it's been, it's been really, really nice to be able to see that there are so many young people who are so passionate about, mm. about kind of finding cool ways in which we bring together how we can all play a part. So whether it is about you know, you're doing your degree or whether it is about a business you're running or whether you're, you know, somebody as a community member, you know, you want to do the right thing. In all of this, we all have a role to play. And I think to me, it's about, you know, really listening to all those ideas that you might kind of hear somebody tell you. But also, in my mind, it was very much about saying, you know what, if, if this works, we're onto something yeah. that has never been done before. And, and of course, as you do in any other project, you look at the literature and you go, well, you know, yeah, of course, a lot of people have looked at, you know, that as a biomaterial mm -hmm. and a bioresource, but to use it in the way we have, which is to use it as a reducing agent to produce iron. And then, of course, um, all the, the metals that we're talking about with iron and steel and, of course, uh, so many other possibilities. Um, we've now shown, and through those papers that we've published, um, that it is indeed possible. So definitely on that journey, um, coffee is an absolutely essential ingredient. Just, you know, waiting for somebody to ask me, what blend would you like to have today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, I know you, you, you don't have a coffee here right now, but you did have one before we started. So yeah. <laughs> I, I know that you're not uh, making that up. Um, it's not just green steel, of course. Uh, probably the other big invention we're talking about is green ceramics. Yeah. And so maybe just a top line overview yeah. of what, what is green ceramics. I think we, actually do, we do actually have some slides. Oh, we were also talking about some of the... Um, the e-waste, right, yes. we were talking about yes. too. But let's just go to some of these ceramics, which are just, so, they're really bloody nice. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, and yeah, I think you've got some here too. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. To, to give us an overview of the green ceramics and sort of what the revolution was there. Why, what did you have to change? How did you challenge normal in this space? Yeah, so, I mean, challenging the normal in this space was really kind of looking at, you know, you look at, like, literally you walk on it all the time, all the tiles, no matter where you go. And of course, the obvious question is, you know, where are they coming from? Like, it's a heavy product. Mm. And if we're importing all of these products in the, into the country from wherever in the world, um, and you, you know, you'd see these beautiful coffee tables. It keeps coming back to coffee. <laughs> you see all these beautiful coffee tables, and you go, and you know, people proudly go, oh, but that's, you know, this marble, and it's come from there and there. And you go, really? But, I mean, we could be making this ourselves. Why does it have to travel? You know, hundreds mm -hmm. of... More carbon dioxide yeah, ex exactly. And, and I guess part of that connectivity with things like waste glass was, so we've got a ceramic material. We know we've got plenty of waste glass, um, you know, in Australia. The, the other key element in all of this that comes into making these green ceramic tiles is, is uh, textiles. Mm. So all that, you know, material that now is no longer wearable 
So if you can't clothes. wear it... Old clothes. Yeah, but exactly. Can't, can't wear it. Then, you know, yeah, of course you need to give it many more lives, use it over and over again, you know, all of that. But beyond the point where it's no longer wearable, can't be used. I mean, you think about all those, again, those molecules that are there. They are useful. Mm. So why would you not kind of think of how that can play a part in the production of these ceramic materials mm. but of course you're sort of going well wait a minute we're talking about something that's hard mm-hmm. and strong how do clothes feature and all of this mm-hmm. so the short answer is yeah absolutely we've been able to produce these green ceramic tiles by bringing in these two very unlikely partners mm-hmm. hard glass mm-hmm. and really some of the softer clothes yeah. fabrics and other materials but of course again the journey in there is really about that transformation journey. So the fact that you can now imagine that your old clothes and, and all kinds of other materials can still give you a hard product like all we're seeing here in terms of you know different kinds of ceramic materials, which means if you could make it locally, because we've got enough raw materials, yeah. no shortage of that. If you could make it locally and if you could do it in a way that you didn't have to invest a lot in basically setting up, you know, mega factories can cost you a lot of money. Um, so we sort of, again, challenge the norm by saying, you can do big things in a micro factory too, you know. You can have a big impact in a micro factory. So what's a micro so, factory? <laughs> what is that? So, so yeah, so a micro factory, which is um, something that, you know, when we started this journey, was about proving that very point, mm. that you can do really big things at that scale that is fit for purpose. So in a micro factory, raw materials come from these kinds of discarded waste sources. So those are your raw materials. Mm. But the important point was you still had to convert that into high quality products. And this is where, of course, the point about a micro factory is that you can actually set it up in a modular fashion. Mm. So you don't have to decide at the start that I'm going to have to have a big factory and investing you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. I can set up a micro factory modular system. I can grow a year or two or three down the road if, I, if the demand grows. But at the start, I can set up these smaller modules as I go. So the whole point of setting up micro factories is to make the point that you can actually have high quality products made from waste, very counterintuitive, where indeed the product doesn't have to look anything like the feedstock mm. material. So the fact that in this case we've got waste glass and waste textiles and you've now created these green ceramic tiles that are now fit for purpose to put them into flooring, walling, all of these different applications is about ultimately engineering you know, this value-added product. So you know, people in the business world might talk about MVPs, you know, minimum viable products. Mm-hmm. I like to think of them as really more than that, EVPs, you know, engineered mm-hmm. viable Products, right? So these these micro factories and like, pardon my ignorance, but when I think of like, may, maybe it's like a the Simpsons probably brought this on. It's like something goes into a box and then it comes out the other side and looks like a beautiful product. Mm. Are you literally tipping in <laughs> textiles and glass into this box and then out comes a beautiful tile? Well, I'm I know that the inside's probably <laughs> secretive in some way, but what what happens? 
Um, so I guess um, you're right. The keyboard there is I'm being very secretive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so yeah. I mean, it's, you can sort of imagine. Yes, in a, in a cartoon world, that's how it would look like. Yes, you okay. know, you know, tipping a bit of this and a bit of yeah. that, and, and and you know, I don't know. You know, I, I love thinking of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you know, because I was sort of going, oh, my God, that's, you know, it's going to be cool, it's going to be fun. But I guess that's why every module does the job that it's meant to do. It's not just, and this is the whole point of a micro factory, mm -hmm. that you need to be really, really careful, even preparing that raw material that we've been talking about, how do you prepare that, has got to be with a purpose in mind. So the fact that you might have all these different elements that have come together um, in the making of these green ceramic tiles is about knowing, you know, how would you have prepared that uh, raw material feedstock? So this is the point about, you know, having that modularity, mm. but also then to be able to say, as part of that ecosystem, you can have many different participants in that supply chain. So we could have somebody who is our textile recycling partner, for instance. Um, they could be providing that feedstock mm. To our industry partner, Kandui, who's then making these green ceramic tiles, but then Kandui can also source that waste glass from that local council, Shoalhaven City Council, who's then providing that feedstock. So, in a way, if you think about it, what we are really talking about is think about a future where you know all of these different value creation opportunities mm. are there in the hands of different people, and everyone can then see themselves being part of that supply chain. So if you, if you find the equivalent in what could be done in the world of iron making and steel making, you know, and I know we've sort of gone back and forth between green steel and green ceramics, but, mm. but that's how we've got to think. We've got to yeah. think that making of one material, that raw material, then that converts into iron, then that iron could then be taken somewhere else and that is converted into a finished steel product much in the same way here, we're talking about different kinds of raw materials that suppliers have to connect laterally. Mm. That lateral integration is important. So if I'm somebody who's collecting waste textiles, I know that there is a purpose and value in what I'm collecting because now I can collaborate with a manufacturer who can then make these products. So that's really where a whole new mindset shift mm. will come in where you know, people might be laterally connected with those that they could have never imagined before, right? So the fact that the guy who is the textile recycler is collecting waste textiles but wants to make sure, apart from reuse options, uh, resale options for, for uh, products, that there's also options available when something is no longer wearable to then partner with a manufacturer who can then take that. But then I've got to see this as a raw material, mm that then gets fed into the manufacturing supply. And that's how you end up with these things, and right? that's exactly how you end up with those so, things. I mean, you have a couple so. of different things. <laughs> so these are coming from your micro factories? So these are coming out of there? Yeah, yeah, so at the moment, of course, all these different things. So the one that can do is making, um, I think, with some of the other products that you're seeing as, as you're scrolling through, um, a lot of these flat uh, surfaces, so whether they are indeed in the form of these, uh, you know, island bench tops to you know, floor tiles to walls, in all of these cases, of course, you've got the opportunity to then say that what should that engineering property, you know, look like? Mm. I've got to be able to still engineer it, you know, so that it is fit for purpose. So it's not, recycling is only the beginning of the journey. Mm. It's actually got to be about, as we we're saying, all these different modules and stages allow us to get to that end 
product. And of course, this end product is not the end of that product's journey because yeah. imagine if that then breaks mm -hmm. through these micro factories because of course the science of micro recycling says that all of these different you know materials that have gone into making mm -hmm. when the macro you know falls apart you back into the machine back into the micro factory again cartoon and yes <laughs> that's right and so exactly. that's a micro factory in the middle here right yeah um, yeah so we've we've actually yeah taken that, that this is in the real world this is <laughs> actually happening it's yeah, not just yeah. something you dreamed up in a lab it's actually happening well it kind of was dreamed up in an empty lab <laughs> was, dreamed, was dreamed up in a lab not just used in a lab but yeah. it's actually out there in the real world yeah it, it exactly is and and we're, we're really you know i mean as we were talking about before that collaboration journey and partnership that we have with so many of our industry partners. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've talked about industry partners who, who are now taking, you know, steel and ceramics, you know, out to the world. I mean, we've got a steel making partner, for instance, um, you know, Molly Cop in, in Newcastle, who is now, you know, looking at taking this technology out to the world. It, it always is mind boggling because you can imagine you've got you know, I mean, in the scheme of things, these are not large, you know, operations mm -hmm. it, from a global context. Surely there are um, operators in different parts of the world who do it on a much bigger scale. But again, that's the point that scalability is not a limiting factor when you've got a new idea. Mm. And I think to me, that's the bit that we need to kind of constantly challenge ourselves and saying, if I've got this idea, it doesn't matter at what scale I'm going to apply. Yeah, I've got to think about the mechanism and the pathway of getting there. Um, but I think in all of these cases, so you look at what we've done with electric arc furnace steel making with polymer injection, you could have, you know, another, you know, similar sort of furnace somewhere else in the world. Mm. And, and of course, you could be deploying, you know, our green steel. Um, for example, when we were traveling through Europe recently, um, you know, people get excited about the possibilities. Um, so, so that's is something that I'm really, you know, kind of looking forward to. The fact that, yes, it's an Australian technology, mm -hmm. um, you know, born in Australia, developed in Australia, and, and the fact that we can take it out uh, to the world. And, you know, you think about um, incredibly um, amazing, you know, industry partners who we've been, um, you know, looking to set up some of the new work that we're doing with both green ceramics as well as, of course, now, uh, green manufacturing of, of plastics. Mm. I think to me, that's another important point because everybody gets really concerned about, you know, how are we going to deal with, you know, all kinds of challenges associated with waste plastics. Mm -hmm. But again, it's about knowing we can't just say, well, you know, all these plastics, we'll just all collect it and we'll just, again, throw it into this magical thing <laughs> and out comes a product, right? Yeah. Because they're all different. What goes into making electronic products to what goes into making all kinds of consumer items, they're all different. So I think for me, you know, that's, again, recognition that when something is called as non-recyclable, because so many plastics, of course, we're converting plastic water bottles into more plastic mm -hmm. water bottles. And that's great because, of course, those PET bottles should be used in that manner where possible. We should do like for like because we're saving on those materials, we don't have to go back and get new materials mm -hmm. if we can keep those circular solutions running in our economy because we're creating local jobs. Mm -hmm. So that's a great outcome. But that doesn't mean that if something can't be converted into the same product that it's not recyclable. Mm -hmm. We just have to say, well, actually what we have to do is we've got to reform it and remanufacture it 
into something that looks completely different. But you have to then challenge the norm in saying that what kind of manufacturing process would allow me to take that complex plastic that is there, for example, in my waste electronics and bring that back to life again. And this is where, of course, you know, we think about our, our partnerships that we're developing with Renew IT, with Kandui. Mm. All of that allows us to then say, okay, well, you know what? Actually, there are so many opportunities. There are so many different pathways to arriving at solutions. And I think for us, that's really the, the thing that, you know, gets us excited at the Smart Center. You know, my, my colleagues and I, when we think about how we can bring all these solutions to life, it is important that we've got that ability. We talk about recognizing all those incredible Australian businesses who are passionate. I know sometimes we, we kind of are critical of, of businesses, you know, in Australia because we go, well, actually, we're not doing enough. Mm. Yeah, sure, there's always room for improvement. But at the same time, we've got to recognize those businesses who are actually partnering and who are excited about the new science and the technology and the new opportunities to actually show to the rest of the world that innovation and science, this is how you do it, and bring everybody along on that journey with you. Mm. And, and bringing people along, I mean, we're bringing businesses along, we're talking a lot about this, these kind of businesses, big businesses, yeah. maybe microfactories, uh, more community-based, but like for people in the audience, I guess, to me sometimes there's a barrier in recycling or like um, thinking about waste where I go, uh, I don't know, that's too bloody hard. I don't understand mm. where I need to put this thing or I don't, you know, recycling batteries, for instance, I've got this box now where I recycle, but I have to plastic tape the top, right? And I, okay, I forget to do that sometimes. Mm. Apparently that can cause explosions or something. Yeah. So there's, like, there's all these uh, sort of like rules over the top yeah. that sometimes I feel like are barriers to our, us challenging the norm. Yeah. Is, there, like, is there a way that I guess you think about this on an individual level and what people can potentially do to overcome that challenge? Yeah, look, I mean, one thing I, I do tell people is that the obvious kind of interface that we all have as members of any community is with our local council. And when you think about, you know, well, okay, you know, we, we obviously interact with them all the time because we know councils offer services, you know, they come and, um, you know, collect all the materials and things that you might put out on the curbside. You have to be able to ask your local council as to what's happening to it. So mm. in a way, that's something that you can do quite easily. So that interface with your local council is important. And this is why I guess, you know, the example of a, a council that we are partnering up with, Shoalhaven City Council, um, these guys out in Nara are, are a great example of a council that has gone literally over and above um, the call of duty mm. whenever we've approached them and said, okay, well, Actually, you know, we'd like to be able to have a bit of space here so we can trial this and a bit of space so we can trial that. Um, and, of course, now, um, you know, one of our micro factories um, literally sitting on their side. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, to be able to kind of imagine how progressive you can start to see local so, councils. So kind of us taking the individual responsibility yeah. and starting yeah. to ask those questions. Yeah, absolutely, of, yeah. absolutely. Because I think, again, by asking those questions, you're also providing a bit of that nudge because if they say oh well no solution exists or no it can't be done well then you can actually go no actually I've read about this this, or I've heard about this Mm -hmm. this can be done so I think to me there's that kind of sense of if we're all going to be members of a community it's also in a way us raising that awareness uh, but also being mindful at at a personal level 
that if we can minimize you know, our consumption. Mm. Or, uh, because of course, at a personal level, you do control you know, what you buy, how much you buy. Um, you, know, you, you can find different ways in which you can you know, have products you don't need you know, that you can swap between family and friends. And there are lots of things you can do at a personal level. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for the more complex things, you know, like you mentioned, batteries and so on, of course, there's nothing you can do at a personal level, um, but follow the safety protocols. Um, you then take that out to, of course, the right collection points. And then, of course, out of all of that, you know, you're enabling that system mm. to come to life because we're all part of that ecosystem. Right, so if these are batteries coming out of our homes, uh, our businesses, well, if we can do the right thing at a personal level, make sure we make it safe. So when you start to think about circularity, of course, it is a complex journey because there are keywords in there because people might have heard of things like circular economy. Well, of course, the bid around the economy can only work if we recognize that there's value mm. in those materials. But yeah. then circular economy can work if we're actually mindful of many different kind of facets to making any solution work. You've got to, you've got to make it safe. Mm -hmm. You've got to make it you know, easy to understand. So all of that is part and parcel. So that awareness part of it could well be that you know, if, if you, know, you don't know, maybe your kids know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No kids here, so they don't know. Uh, <laughs> Are you, are you buoyant? Are you positive about that kind of movement? I mean, to, to really to wrap this up in a nice, neat little bow, are you hopeful that people are challenging what normal looks like? Are you seeing that? Oh, oh look, absolutely, absolutely. I, th I think the fact that as Australians, one of the things, you know, I, I just love, um, you know, when I have these conversations, no matter where, where I am, um, you know, I was, I was speaking in Dubbo, um, you know, a couple of days ago, and... You know, you could just be just about anywhere in Australia and you will always, always be able to have that conversation with people where at the local level, again, the local council, after listening to, you know, what I was talking about and the conversations locally means that it is, it is people going, well, great, you know, we're really excited, you know, what can we do? Okay, there are all of these different challenges, but you know what? Yep, we can do something here. And I think, Timmy... It's yes, whether it is the local business or the council or people from the communities, you can have that conversation because people want to actually understand, you know, what the science is telling us. Um, you know, people want to understand how that can make a difference to their communities. But also people do understand that all important question that this is going to help us create those brand new jobs. So when we talk about remanufacturing in this instance, that waste material, which is now a raw material, is not going to landfill. It's actually going into a, a micro factory in this instance, which means we're creating new jobs. So I think, I think people get the big picture. Mm. I think we're really smart in kind of imagining that future, but again, imagining it in terms of creating impact in our local communities, in our local regions. And I think to me, that's the bit that... I really find inspiring because in a way you can have all those hardcore business questions and the you know analytical discussions you know does the science make sense does the business make sense once you go past all of that what you're bringing to the table and we all do as human beings is we bring our heart 
So if we can bring both our head and our heart to the table in any conversation, we're human beings. Absolutely, there are things that bother us. There are things that move us. But we, we want to do the right thing. And I think that's the one thing that you get plenty of in Australia, no matter where you go. Well, the queen of waste, everyone. Uh, yes. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.